This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Jean-Marc Jones, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Michael Horner, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 471 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jane Linsgold. She's the author of more than 20 novels, including Through Wolf's Eyes, Artemis Awakening, and Asphodel. She's also written three books with David Weber, set in the universe of his Honor Harrington series of military science fiction novels. And we'll be speaking with her today about her short story collection, Curiosities, and her writing advice book, Wanderings on Writing. And now here's our interview with Jane Linsgold. All right, so we're here with Jane Linsgold. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so let's start off with your short story collection, Curiosities. So how'd that book come about? Uh, it came about more or less through serendipity. I did a favor for a friend who does ebook and print-on-demand formatting, and as a thank you for the favor, she gave me a couple of free formatting jobs, and I decided that I wanted a short story collection, but they're harder and harder to find. So I put one together myself. So what was that process like of selecting the stories? It was a lot of fun. Um, I decided that I have over 70 published short stories, even then, have more now. And I decided that what would be fun would be to pick a handful that would reflect various things over the course of my career. So I, of course, started with my first published story. But then I moved forward, and the further I went along, I tried to pick stories that were very different from each other so that, uh, so that there would be a good selection of the idea that I don't just write fantasy, I don't just write science fiction, I write a whole bunch of different types of stories. And I really found it interesting and sort of stimulating to look back from the me I was then at the me I was at the time each story was written. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So what was the me you were then like? Like, what were you, what was your impression of some of those early stories? Honestly, I liked them all. Um, <laughs> I, I am not one of those writers who has found myself looking back at my earlier work and going, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. And I don't feel like I need to be falsely modest and pretend that I like what I've done. I'm proud of what I've done. I've had fun, maybe because I've always had fun. I never feel embarrassed because I was never trying to be pretentiously one thing or another or follow anyone else's trend. Mm. I mean, I noticed that 12 of the stories in the book were written for anthologies that were co-edited by Martin H. Greenberg. Is there any story behind how you started writing for those anthologies? Uh, It was simply awareness of the marketplace. At that time, 
uh, Marty was the person who who was putting out most of the anthologies. So when I was getting started, I read did as you did way back in the dark ages before web pages, before online chat groups, or any of those things, and took the trade magazine Locus, the trade magazine, um, what was it, Science Fiction Chronicle, and I would read the part of the column that said X has sold Y to Z. And if it was an anthology that I thought I had a chance of submitting to cold, I would. So Marty happened to be on deck for most of those anthologies, which is why he didn't, he was not always the main editor at the helm. He often had uh, someone working with him, I uh, worked a lot with Larry Segriff and John Helfers later on with uh, with some other people. But that's why Marty uh, is listed on so many of them. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of writers say that um, that they really like writing for the theme anthologies because when you just have to sit down and write a story about anything, you know, anything is a pretty big subject. Whereas if it's like, oh, I need a story about Shakespeare cats, you're like, okay, well, I can work with that. You know Exactly. Exactly. I think theme anthologies are fun that way. In my case, I would always toss myself the additional challenge of, I really want my story to make it into this anthology. I'm I'm not a big name, or at least at that time, I had very little recognition. So I would go out of my way to try and come up with the strangest possible idea so that it would stand out from the herd. So the second story I think I sold, the first one I sold to a Marty Greenberg anthology, the second story I sold uh, between tomatoes and snapdragons has to do with a dragon that is hatched from an egg that grows on a Italian tomato plant. He didn't have a lot of those. <laughs> well, yeah, because I, I heard you I, or in one of these books that I read, you said that, you know, that when your approach for these theme anthologies is, you know, say the topic was dragons, that you would sit down and make a list of, you know, like, what do you, what would be the expected things about dragons? They're big, they're wise, they're nasty. And then you would consciously avoid those things. And I thought that was a really good, a really smart approach to take for a theme anthology. For, yeah, both for a theme anthology and I'll go further and say for a beginning writer, because One thing that a lot of beginning writers don't realize is that the majority of publications are already pre-sold, or I should say the spaces are pre-allocated to somebody. Even the magazines, which look like fresh open field, still there are editors, uh, maybe not as much now, but at least back in the day, who would have already allocated, you know, spoken to their buddy this or their buddy that, and half or more of the magazine would be full beforehand. An anthology, even today, uh, I get query letters from someone who's putting an anthology together and says, I'm putting an anthology together. I This is the basic theme. If you would be interested, can you let me know? Because when I go to shop it, it will help me to be able to say, and if you buy this anthology from me, Jane Lynn's Gold will be writing one of the stories for it. So it's not 
an open field. And so you need to go out of your way to make sure your story will not be, oh, goodness, yet another prince who's really a princess rescues the hero who is really a heroine from the dragon. Yeah, I mean, you said that actually you wrote an article for the Writer magazine about how how uh, challenging the odds are for 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 new writers and anthologies and that they they asked you to they said it was too too discouraging and could you write something else yes and so i did write something else but but uh i had a really good idea at that point uh just just from going to conventions talking to other professionals how how really many spaces were already taken and uh I knew I would have to work extra hard to get any of those spaces. I will admit that uh, the progress from cold submissions, that is, I saw a listing somewhere and decided to submit submit a story, to uh, what you might call lukewarm submissions. I got an invitation, but it was clearly because somebody else had dropped out and they needed somebody who could come in fairly fast. Uh, I always felt like a pinch hitter in those cases. And I knew if I proved myself, someday I might get an invitation right up front. And the, the day I got the first one, I was I was just kind of through the moon. Wow, I have actually, look, there's a, a three-month lag on when the story needs to be turned in. That means I got it in the first round. Wow. So <laughs> it's a progress. So those earlier ones where it's kind of at the last minute, how quickly would you have to write one of those stories? Um, usually anywhere between a couple of weeks or a month. It's been a long time, I, and I didn't keep the original invitation letters, so I can't tell you. But uh, it was sometimes pretty tight, but I liked, I liked the challenge. Well, right, because you seem to, you know, I mean, you talk in your book about how you would you were writing everywhere. You know, you were writing, you were carrying around a clipboard with you and you were writing, you know, like waiting for appointments. And uh, you say while your students were taking quizzes and during your gaming group. And you say memorably, I wrote an entire short story in a faculty meeting. Yes, that's right. That's right. That was my short story relief, which appeared in Heaven Sent. Uh, edited by, I think, Peter Crowther. I think that was one of the cold submissions that I had seen in a trade magazine. They were looking for angel stories. And I had the idea for relief. I had to be at the all-faculty meeting. I was a very junior professor, which meant if I didn't show up, it would reflect badly on me. And if I did show up, I really wasn't expected to do anything but be a warm body. So I had my clipboard and I had an idea for a story and I sat happily scribbling away about uh, a very desperately unhappy woman who is sincerely contemplating suicide. And I am absolutely certain that no one in my department thought I was taking notes on the meeting. <laughs> um, and I've seen other writers do this. I remember sitting at the Avon book table, I think it was, at one of the Nebula banquets. And 
someone was having technical problems on a giving their speech, they couldn't get their PowerPoint or something like that to do what they wanted. And I noticed that one of the other authors very surreptitiously had taken one of the large fancy dinner napkins and a ballpoint pen and was busily writing on the other side of the table. And I was absolutely certain she was working on some uh, piece of fiction. Yeah. What did you, when the, when the writer magazine said, that's too discouraging, we want you to write something more optimistic. What did you think about that? Cause it seems like as a writer, you kind of need to know what the I thought it was, is, right? Or, yeah, you know, honestly, I thought it was unfair on their part. Um, but I could see their point. The writer at that point, I don't know if it still exists anymore, but the writer at that point made its pocket money by being the go-to for would-be writers to learn about the trade. And I guess they felt that discouraging people before they could get started would rather defeat their own object. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of something that Mike Resnick told me once is, you know, he was talking about those writers mark, the giant writers market books that you see. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, they have it would say like, you know, 2000 places to sell your fiction or something that, like that. And you're like, well, wow, with 2000 places to, to sell my fiction, I can't lose, you know. And then you you buy it and you find out that like 90 percent of them are dead markets. Right. And he said that he, you know, he when he was editing a magazine, he he went to great lengths to try to get them to take. When he stopped editing the magazine, the magazine was gone. He, tra- he went to great lengths to try to get them to take it out of the book, and they just wouldn't because they wanted, they wanted you to see that huge book full of, uh, of markets. Interesting. I had no idea. That's really scummy. Yeah. Um, so in your, uh, in your book on writing, you say, uh, don't major in creative writing. So why do you think that is? Well, because majoring in creative writing essentially teaches you to write um, dry, introspective literary fiction. It actually is almost more often geared toward preparing you to teach fiction writing than it is to teach, to prepare you to be a writer of fiction professionally. I won't name names, but one of my fellow New Mexico writers um, liked very much uh, being a guest speaker at schools. And she found that her chances of getting those kind of gigs went up if she had a degree in writing, as opposed to just being a award-nominated novelist. Go figure. So she decided to go take... uh, take courses and get her MFA, Master of Fine Arts, in writing at the University of New Mexico. And she was appalled when early on in the class they were discussing the teaching of fiction, and one of her classmates said, a professor, professor, what do I do if they want to write genre fiction? And it was bizarre to find out that there was this entire subculture devoted to teaching people to write essentially unpublishable fiction 
or fiction that if you got published, you would get paid in copies because, well, that wasn't literature. So that's why I figured that anyone who would pick up my book on writing would be interested in writing genre fiction. So an MFA would only teach them things that would not necessarily help them. I mean, what were your experiences like in academia? Because you went to, to Fordham for nine years or something um, yes. studying English literature. Yes, I, at, I was at Fordham University. I took my bachelor's degree there with an English major. And then when I applied to graduate school um, for English, uh, Fordham was one of the places I applied and they accepted me. So I went back and did a master's and a Ph.D., in lit. My experiences were fine. I like lit and I like teaching it. And I wasn't taking Master of Fine Arts courses. I was taking English literature courses, which really did give me a wonderful grounding in the in world literature. Uh, and when I took my first teaching job at Lynchburg College, a very small college in South Central Virginia. I had the most lovely department and they were extremely interested and mildly amused to have a would-be science fiction writer uh, among them. As long as I taught my classes and did a good job, uh, if I wanted to write science fiction and fantasy, then that was fine. And when I sold my first novel and then another and short fiction, they were really supportive and really excited about it. So I was very lucky. I didn't run into the snobbery, maybe because it was a small college, um, maybe because they were just super nice people. But so if you had it to do over again, you would, you would do the English Lit PhD again, or would you do something different? I liked it. So, yeah, I probably would. Um, I really like Lit. And I can't think of anything that I would have more fun working on. You'll see fun is a, a, a big thing for me. I, I really don't understand uh, people who choose to be, to, to shoehorn themselves into things that will make them miserable. I want to go to bed at night feeling like my day was worth spending and get up in the morning and not dread it. So, yeah, I'd probably major in lit literature again. I had a great time. I learned a lot. I read a lot. I mean, boy, getting to go to school and read and read and more read. Hmm. Uh, it, what's, what's wrong with that? And I like writing papers. Um, so that was fine, too. Yeah, I'd do it again. Because in the book, you talk about having, I don't know how recently this was now, but you talk about having a dream where you're sort of arguing with one of your English professors about how the fiction that he's having you read is all about sort of people being, feeling sorry for themselves and not trying to change anything. Right. And that was very specific to the, the, the Auden quotation that is often misquoted because people don't read the entire poem. And the Auden quotation is essentially, uh, poetry changes nothing. And then he goes on through the poem and finishes the poem. And the point is that actually poetry changes a lot of things. 
because it changes how people think. It changes how people will believe in themselves. Um, when I was doing my graduate work at Fordham at that time, what you did is you picked, you took a wide span of courses, but then you picked two minor areas of concentration and a major area of concentration. And my minor areas were medieval literature and Renaissance literature. And my major area was modern fiction. It, at that point, it was called modern British fiction. But as one of my professors put it, exactly how do you define a time period where T.S. Eliot is born in the United States, but moves to England and does most of his publishing there? And W.H. Auden does the same thing, except he's born in England and moves to the United States. So it may have been called modern British, but it really was very much world oriented. But it was heavily influenced by, at that time period, we were picking up with the World War I, World War II generations, a lot of literature written by people who had seen uh, death and destruction on a scale that could not be really comprehended by any prior time period. And they were often struggling to figure out how to fit the individual into the larger picture. You had people like Yeats who wanted there to be an Irish cultural identity and he was very afraid that it was going to get completely subsumed by the beginning of the 20th century homogeneity of culture, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I won't, I won't put on my English professor hat and start lecturing. But one of the most influential novelists of that time period was James Joyce, who I absolutely despise. And with the same professor uh, who I mentioned in that dream, uh, and I would routinely come to loggerheads over the, the subject of Joyce. And I did my best. I even took an entire course dedicated to nothing but Joyce so that I could really try and understand why people thought he was so wonderful. Um, but it didn't work. I got an A in the course, and my professor looked at me and said, well, Jane, I have to congratulate you for not falling into the usual graduate student adulation of George. <laughs> um, but I really felt that Joyce was overpraised for a small handful of novels that were self-aggrandizing. Uh, oh, heck, I'll stop. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> And his, that his final best-known novel, Finnegan's Wake, is essentially a gigantic cryptogram meant to cater to reviewers and English professors, to me, was part of the problem. We had reached a point where literature was beginning to cater to the reviewer. It was beginning to cater to the English the literature professor. It was no longer trying to reach the audience, the reader. And I've always been much more interested in material that is meant to touch a reader. And so for that reason, uh, repeated novels about 
male professors having midlife crises and getting crushes on girls in their class and et cetera, over and over and over again, really held no interest for me. Yeah. Well, and there is this sort of um, this sort of generalization that you allude to where in, in literary fiction that the characters don't really try to change anything. And in, in fantasy and science fiction, the characters often are trying to change the world. Precisely. Um, but then, you know, you also you also note in this book, though, that in dystopian fiction, you often have characters who are just kind of beaten down by their horrible, oppressive society and that you find that um, that detracts from your enjoyment of dystopian fiction just as right. much. Because, again, it's, it's taking a page from literary fiction. Oh, we're dark and edgy here because no one can succeed. We're more literary because no one can succeed. Unfortunately, and you're welcome to disagree with me. I, I'm very happy being disagreed with. Um, I really feel that sometime in the 1980s, there came a very strong need on the part of some of the people writing science fiction and fantasy to hope that they would be recognized by the literary establishment. So instead of writing to the audience that was out there, they began to write to the reviewer, to the critic. And I really feel they hurt that particular trend began to hurt the genre. And you see it reflected in how in about the 1990s and a little bit thereafter, you begin to see more and more science fiction and fantasy readers, adult as well as young adult, turning to what would become the burgeoning young adult market. Because that's where they were finding the stories about adventure they were finding the stories where people were up against the odds, but succeeded at least somewhat, as opposed to the stories where um, the big corporations have everybody locked in boxes and even our valiant hacker or whatever um, in the end is going to die miserably because you can't, you can't fight Big Brother. I prefer the stories where you fight Big Brother even if you're not completely effective. Yeah, and I, I, I largely agree with your analysis there. I mean, because I always just have loved fantasy and science fiction, um, and in particular, the most sort of core genre elements of, you know, spaceships and sword fights <laughs> and dragons and that kind of stuff. And um, and yeah, and so, yeah, often in, in, in high school or college, you would have people say like, oh, that's not that's not real literature. And so you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go hang out at a science fiction convention and then everybody will, uh, you know, be on the same page as me. And then even at a science fiction convention, oftentimes, you know, people are like, you know, would turn up their nose at a story that's, you know, epic fantasy or space opera or something like that. Exactly. too much fantasy. And yeah, I do find that really frustrating. Yeah. And I'm certain you've seen the meme that, you know, ranks various fandoms by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so it's very human. Anytime you get a community that gets large enough, you have people wanting to feel they're better than other people by deciding that what they're doing is more valid than what someone else is doing. Many years ago, uh, when WesterCon was held in the Phoenix, Arizona area where my mother lives, we decided to buy her a membership and take her with us. And 
I really wondered what she would think of this world, so to speak, that I spent so much time in. And I was thrilled. She's not a big science fiction and fantasy reader. She reads some and she always reads my stuff, which is awfully nice. But what thrilled me was she appreciated how much work went into the costumer's work. So rather than looking down her nose at people running around dressed as you know, fairy tale princesses or Sailor Moon or um, somebody from Star Wars, she went, wow, what a lot of creative energy is going on here. And to me, that's what's really great about science fiction fandom in general is the huge amount of creative energy that's there. So to try and put a hierarchy of values that says your epic fantasy isn't worthy because I'm into dark and edgy dystopia that reflects, look, this book is an allegory on climate change and how horrible it is. I'm like, I can get that on the news. Thank you. Take me, take me somewhere. Let me see Werner Vinge's Times and their curious cooperative society, etc. Don't, don't just give me an allegory for what I can read on the evening news. I'm smart enough to figure that out on my own. Yeah, what I always think of uh, when, when people have these sort of hierarchies uh, that nobody outside that community cares about or knows about is, uh, you know, my, my dad's a physicist and uh, you know, he taught at Stanford. I mean, you would think he would have no um, no reason to be insecure or anything, but he told me one time that he's a condensed matter physicist and that the high energy physicists look down on the condensed matter physicists. <laughs> and so it's like, no matter where you are, you're kind of, you know, this this sort of thing crops up. Yep. I, someone once said, if you have, you know, uh, three people working on a project, someone wants to be nominated committee chair. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about this book, Wanderings on Writing? Like, how did that come about? Okay. Uh, Wanderings on Writing was the, the owed its genesis to that same favor I did for that same person. She gave me two book formatting jobs. So, uh, I had been doing a blog at that time for a number of years, and I had begun to have people say, I know all of your blog is available on for free on your website, but sometimes I don't want to have to go through your blog site looking for something I'd like to have together to read. So I decided, okay, I'll use my second free formatting job to do that. I went through all the columns on writing that I'd written for the blog, uh, picked them up, and uh, shook them a little bit, which ones needed a little bit of expansion, which ones needed a little bit of pruning, which ones didn't fit, and arranged them in a more or less associative order. And I wrote what to me is the only piece I hope everyone reads before they read the rest of the book, which is the introduction, which is called something like no golden key, because this book in many ways was my reaction. No, it's called forging the golden key. Okay. This book in many ways is my reaction to the many, many books on writing that are out there that promise they don't hint at, they flat out promise, read my book, follow my steps, and you will be a bestseller. 
And to me, that's a real betrayal because that's just not going to happen. So the introduction essentially says there is no golden key. There is no one answer, but you can find what the answers are to, for you that suit you and that will in turn make you into the writer you want to be. Not me as a writer, but the writer you want to be. And these essays are then how I've thought about various topics about writing from how to schedule your work time to how to keep from overly restricting yourself to how to do research, whatever. Read them in any old order. If there's a reference to another piece, I'll let you know it's in there. And forge your own golden key, the one that'll work for you. One thing that I really liked about this book that I haven't really seen covered so much in other books about writing that I've read is this uh, issue of living with a writer or being a writer <laughs> living with other with non-writers. And I was just curious if you could talk about sort of how, how those chapters came together. Those chapters came together, well, for two reasons. One was I was seeing a number of relationships in various stages that were self-destructing because one person in the relationship had no idea what it was like to really live with a writer. And I'm in a sort of weird circumstance in that way. I am a writer, but I lived with a writer, Roger Zelazny. And so I know perfectly well that living with a writer is a sort of weird experience where that person is completely devoted to spending lots of time by themselves, delving into a place that you can't go until they let you, which involves people who don't exist in places that don't exist, and yet they are the most important places and people in the world to them at that given moment. So I knew what it was like to live with a writer, but I also felt that many writers I had met were incredibly self-centered and, and pig-headed about what it was like to live with a writer. They, uh, I mentioned, I think, in the essay that I was on a panel that was, the panelists were asked from the floor, does your family read your work? And going down the table, sob story after sob story about how no, you know, whether they were young enough to still have their parents be their main target or their spouse or whatever. And the audience was just so sympathetic because, of course, if they lived with whichever writer that was, they'd want to read all their stuff. And I thought, wow, this is a really egocentric profession. If they were living with a, say, a senior accountant who spent all day putting together a really complicated incorporation agreement, would they then expect that person to go ahead and um, read the incorporation agreement or at least hear them discuss it in detail? No. So I felt that we need some give and take here. If you're a writer 
and you're asking your family, which whether it's as in my case, just my husband, to accept the fact that you are devoted to people who don't exist, then in turn, you need to give back and not expect them to center their whole life on worshiping your creativity. That's sort of the short version of those two essays. Yeah, and the thing, because I'm a, I'm a writer, so the, the thing I thought was so brilliant is, and I'm one of those self-centered writers that you mentioned earlier, because, you know, definitely I would be, you know, sitting on the couch and I have something I'm thinking about, and then some family member would come along and be like, oh, well, since you're not doing anything, why don't you do the laundry or something? And then I'm <laughs> like, now I, I completely lost whatever I was thinking about, you know, how dare you? And um, I thought it was so clever in your book that you say that you actually tell the people around you, like, I'm working on something now, even though you can't tell, or I'm not working on something now, even though you can't tell, and that that really helps the people it really around does. you know. Yeah, and it, I'm fortunate. My husband now of almost 25 years, um, I met him through the New Mexico writers community. And so he already had listened to an awful lot of writers talk about writing and such. And so he was well on the way to understanding that writers are extremely difficult people to live with. Um, but I still felt I owed him the courtesy of, yes, you can bug me now. I'm just sitting here playing solitaire. Uh, or, hmm. no, please don't bother me because I'm playing solitaire because I'm trying to work out this really elaborate plot point. And how is how the devil is he going to know the difference if I don't tell him? And he's wonderful. I'll just, you know, say... He is my first reader. Um, he is phenomenally patient. I don't really like to share something until it's as good as I can make it. But that doesn't mean that I can't resist occasionally reading a paragraph that I think is pretty cool or asking him, hey, if X or Y, what do you think? Um, and so he's incredibly patient about getting these strange questions out of context. and. Uh, and waiting to hear what I'm working on when it's as good as I can make it, because he knows that's important to me, rather than insisting either on ignoring it entirely or, um, hey, you know, let me read as you go along. Um, so I feel extraordinarily blessed, and I couldn't have asked for better. Yeah, because you notice well that a lot of people have a really romanticized view of what it'll be like <laughs> to date a writer, and they just think, "Oh, this will be cool," and they don't really think about like this person is going to be working twenty four seven for very little money. That doesn't sort of enter the equation <laughs> a lot of the time. You, you're so right, and you mentioned the very little money thing. That is something that so many people who want to get into writing don't understand. Is that uh, money is infrequent and erratic. And when I'm asked by young people who want to know, I really want to be a writer, what should I major in? I tell them, you need to major in something that will help you make a living, preferably something that does not involve writing, because if you write all day at the newspaper or whatever, you're not going to have the energy to write later on your beloved novel. So major in something you don't hate, but that will let you make a living that isn't involved in writing. And the second thing is take some elective courses in contracts 
and accounting because the IRS really doesn't care that you have your head in the clouds and want to write about towering marble structures and the uh, you know gender fluid princess on her quest to discover uh, what her what her his their uh, true identity is. The IRS is going to say, "Excuse me, um, where are your?" Uh, supporting documentation for your de- deductions hmm. and where are your uh, where is the money that you earned and uh, we get we get a tax cut out of this so that's my advice learn something about contracts learn something about accounting so one of my um one of my favorite parts of curiosities was this character Kadenri alien in, in your story, Small Heroes. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could talk about how you, how you came up with that character. Sure. Um, you already know this story because you read it, but I would, I'd love, I love telling it. Um, I am, and this is one of those things that once again, back when I was starting writing, most people really looked down their nose at role-playing gamers. Um, but I've been a role-playing gamer since I was a freshman in college, and I love gaming. Uh, it's a very important part of my, my life, and probably will be as long as I can find people to game with. And when I moved to New Mexico to live with Roger Zelazny, once we were settled in, I told him that uh, the one part I missed of my old life was gaming. And so I got involved in, he said, well, George has a gaming group. I'll ask him if anyone he knows is looking for somebody. And George, who was George R. R. Martin, uh, was very enthusiastic and welcoming and warm. And we joined the group that included most of the core wildcard writers, uh, George R. R. Martin, Melinda Snodgrass, and... Uh, well, this guy I'd eventually marry. Um, <laughs> and Walter John Williams and Melinda's then husband, Carl Kine. After Roger was gone, uh, I was still hanging out with those people. And Carl really wanted to run a space adventure. Actually, no, excuse me. Roger was still with us because he played the ship's chaplain, um, which was very funny. And... <laughs> Oh, it really was. Uh, he he did from memory the entire atheist's prayer uh, at one point, the which is from his novel uh, Creatures of Light and Darkness, uh, as a rebuttal to one of the aliens we encountered. But that doesn't that isn't Cadenry. I wanted to play an alien. I like aliens. Uh, I love aliens, and I wanted to play a real alien alien. So I put together a about three foot tall or less um, hermaphrodite, well, actually non-gendered member of a race that Cadenry's race has the, the, the mutually fertile uh, breeders and then the guardians of which Cadenry was one. And Cadenry was on this ship as a security officer. And it was a tremendous amount of fun 
playing the a, a creature for whom paranoia was a very positive racial imperative. You didn't trust anybody because that was in your genes. It wasn't because you were mean-spirited or anything. And my favorite moment in that game came when George R. R. Martin was also playing an alien, The Rock. Um, and I just felt in my blood and bones that The Rock was going to try and pull something. <laughs> so I wrote a note to the referee saying, Cadenry is going to consult with the medical department and find some non-dangerous to the rock, but traceable element that will be put in the rock's food. Because I want to be able to track the rock, no matter what the rock does. So Carl nodded, indicated that I could do this thing. And when a scenario or so later, the rock went down planet side and fissioned, uh, preparatory to doing whatever nefarious thing was in mind. I, uh, <laughs> I looked at Carl and said, I turn on the scanners and track. And George was like, you can't, I'm in too many little pieces. And I, and Carl <laughs> simply handed him the note. And George just looked at me and said, you didn't, you didn't. <laughs> so when I was asked to write a story, um, for an anthology about, aliens and space and stuff and heroes. I wanted to write about Kadenri. And uh, in that particular story, it's nothing to do with the game, but Kadenri is in Kadenri's home culture and is making contact with humans to warn them that the dominant intelligent race on the planet is quite likely to wipe out Kadenri's race. Um, and I, I just... I had a wonderful time. Uh, I love Kadenry. I'd like to do more with Kadenry. Just there's only so many, much time. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my all-time two favorite authors are Roger Zelazny and George R. R. Martin. So just when you talk about hanging out with both of them at the same time, it's almost just like overload for my brain. Oh, well, I'm so glad you like Roger's work. Uh, it makes me so, so happy. Um, one of the hardest things of... Uh, I, I just I adored his work long before I met him, and he was a really terrific person, and he loved what he did and never lost that joy and delight. And that's why he wrote so many different sorts of things, because he 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 wasn't writing for I mean, he cared about his literary heritage, sure. More than, far more than I do. I think being an English professor has made me singularly cynical about things in that area. The, the future can make up its own mind. But he never let the fact that he cared about his literary heritage stop him from writing the story he wanted to write at a given moment, which is why he wrote Sword and Sorcery and Swashbuckling Heroes and also, you know, highly experimental things uh, because he loved telling all sorts of different stories. You would have liked him. You really would have liked him. 
Yeah, that's that's so cool to hear. And yeah, I've, I've just heard so many, you know, I've tried to track down as many stories about him as I can. And I, I read your biography and I, I read uh, the Krulik biography and so on. But I don't think I'd ever heard this story before that um, that he uh, he was once at a convention and his team lost a trivia contest because he forgot <laughs> the name of one of his own characters. Yep. 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 That was funny. Um, yeah. He the trivia question was, what was the name of the I guess the the barmaid in Jack of Shadows. And he just looked blank and Liz Danforth, the artist on the other team, said she waited very patiently because she could tell it was a softball question that had been thrown to him. (laughs) And when it was clear he wasn't going to bat it, she was like, Rosie. He was, he was very, a very enthusiastic about writing person. And the thing I value the most about having met him at a really formative part in my own writing career is he never tried to teach me how to write. He taught me a heck of a lot about the business, which is why I try and teach would-be writers that there's a business side to it. And he loved to talk writing in the abstract, but he never did anything like pick up one of my stories and say, you know, if you tweak this this way and that that way, um, it would probably sell better. He let me find out what my voice would be on my own. And having had to restrain myself from doing the same thing with other people over the last several decades, I appreciate how hard that must have been for him to see be constantly sad because I wasn't quite selling and yet not do the tweaking that would probably guarantee that something sold. He also uh, really appreciated the fact that I did not want to trade in any way, shape or form on our relationship. Um, And I've never seen him angrier than the time that I had submitted a story cold to an anthology And the editor of the anthology, who was not Martin H. Greenberg, thank you very much, uh, phoned and said, well, Roger's name would sell a lot better if you put Roger's name on it or uh, put him on as a collaborator. Or he could write a couple of paragraphs, and that way it really would be a collaboration. I've never seen him angrier. Um, It's probably that person never realized how much they hurt themselves in his estimation with that. And just to speak well for Marty, he heard about it and he was packaging that anthology, though not associated with it as a, uh, an editor. And when he heard what had happened, he phoned me and offered to pay me the full fee for the story as an apology. I declined because it wasn't his fault. Somebody he was packaging for was an opportunistic jerk. But it just shows what a fine, fine gentleman he was. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've talked about this on the show recently, but, you know, I always wanted to go to Santa Fe because that was where Roger Zelazny lived. And I've just never lived anywhere near Santa Fe, so I never have made it there. But my girlfriend and I just moved to Austin. <laughs> and so we're planning to do a road trip to visit my parents in California and stop by Santa Fe on the way. And I was just thinking last night, you know, that the first um, the first time I heard your name was that you had a piece called Zelazny Santa Fe that was in Ambrosine number one back in 
1992. Yes. And so I uh, I pulled that off the shelf last night and I sort of wrote down all the places that you mentioned. Oh, nice. In Santa Fe. So we can sort of do a little tour. Um, oh, great. Trip there. That was a memorable trip. That really was interesting. He liked living in Santa Fe a lot, and he had seen it grow from um, a a relatively dusty backwater to an increasingly popular touristic uh, destination, so had an interesting perspective on it. So so my list here is we've got the Hilton, La Tertulia, which I think isn't there anymore, but I can go look at the building, La Fonda Hotel, and the Wheelwright Museum of Art. Yeah. So I thought, it, well, I had you. Is there anything else uh, subsequent to that article that you think I should check out? Yeah, you know, you might, if you get the chance, you should drive up to the ski basin along the mountain road. Um, that was a really memorable drive for me because I was at that point not accustomed to how various shifts in altitude uh, change your biome so completely. Uh, I was living in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, but compared to the Rockies, they're just bumps. And Roger had this idea that we should drive up to the ski basin. And it was like going on a hell ride from, if you're familiar with the Amber books, it was just like going on a hell ride because you, know, you take the car around a curve and all of a sudden there's snow and you take it around another curve and all of a sudden there's tall trees and where before it had just been juniper and other low growth things. And so if you want to go on a hell ride, uh, drive up to the <laughs> ski basin. Well, I definitely do. So yeah, definitely going to do that. Um, so um, I also wanted to ask you about your story, Jeff's best joke, which <laughs> your husband, Jim, appears as a character. Could you yes. talk about that? Yes. Um, I had been asked to submit a story to an anthology of time travel pieces called Past Imperfect. And having at that point lived with Jim for a while, I really felt that archaeologists are time travelers. Uh, go for a hike with Jim and he'll tell you not just what's in front of you, but what was there. Um, he knows the difference between the bump in the landscape that's just a natural hill and the bump on the landscape that is a, uh, a partially buried Pueblo, uh, which is a generic term used for any uh, dwelling used by the historic or prehistoric peoples of the Southwest, you know, the, the communities. Uh, the Spanish word Pueblo is usually broadly applied. And so I really wanted to write a story about archaeologists as time travelers. And Jim and his good buddy, Jeff Boyer, who, with whom he co-directed a lot of projects, liked to play practical jokes on each other, which often involved um, putting stuff in an area someone was digging in a fashion that they would it would not actually disturb the stratigraphy, but would, in one way, shape, or form, um, uh, they would they would be methodically digging down from the top and then and and drawing conclusions and then come across something that just didn't fit the time period. And uh, Jeff lived in Taos at a time that he and Jim were doing a dig outside of Taos 
And Jeff, Jeff took advantage of the fact that uh, he was there over the weekend when Jim had gone back home to Albuquerque. And he went out, went down into the area that Jim was digging, very, very carefully re- removed some non-important material and slid in a 1950s license plate and then <laughs> left it. And it took a couple of weeks before Jim got down to there, hit the license plate. His immediate reaction was, oh, great, this is actually disturbed material, not otherwise. Starts cursing a blue streak. (laughs) And then he caught Jeff grinning and realized what Jeff had done. Um, The other thing they did is they had this onyx frog that they used to find ways to slip into each other's uh, other's materials. They just had, they never actually messed up anything, but they had a great deal of fun. So I decided it would be interesting to write about a dig where something anachronistic and recognizable was found that would be proof of time travel. But I needed to build up the fact that we had these two practical jokers as part of the story. And I got stuck because I couldn't write fictional characters doing what Jim and Jeff did. So finally I asked Jim when he called me from the office, I said, ask Jeffrey if he minds being a character in a story. I promise he will do nothing that would, would be offensive to his morals or ethics And he can read the story first if he wants. Uh, And I'm going to use you too. You don't have any choice. Uh, He knew he did actually, but he was, he was tickled. And so the only story I've ever written that has two undisguised uh, people I know in it is, is Jeff's best joke in which uh, the Jim of that time and Jeff Boyer both appear. I really had fun with that one. Yeah. I mean, one thing I thought was so interesting about it was it, the issue comes up if of if you're doing an archaeological dig and you come across a body that you have to call the police and have them come and confirm that it's not a recent murder victim. Yes. And that this is apparently just a sort of routine kind of thing. And yep. I never thought about that before, but I thought that was a really interesting insight into just the daily life of an archaeologist. At least the daily life in our, of an archaeologist in New Mexico. Um, rules and regulations will change from place to place. Um, but in New Mexico, that's the case. And the local police are pretty used to being called out, taking a glance saying, yep, that's obviously really old, (laughs) but the reverse happens sometimes. And sometimes the police will actually come and get the archeologists and ask for help. Um, there was a case where there had been a flash flood in an arroyo that had washed out an area underneath some tree roots and exposed a skeleton. And the local law enforcement knew that Jim and his crew were working in the area. And they came out and said, could you give us your opinion on the age of this particular um, thing? You know, do we need to start looking for a murderer or or not? And so Jim and he had a uh, archaeological uh, osteologist with him on that dig. And they went out and they looked at it and, and said, yeah, no, this is really old. But then there was the reverse. There was the time that Jim was relaxing at home. This is before we got together, relaxing at home of an evening and a knock on his door. 
And it was one of his friends who had been out hiking in an area outside of Albuquerque and had come across a skull that looked a little funny to him. And he brought it into Jim and said, uh, old or new. And Jim said, this has still got bone grease on it. It's new. Call the cops. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I've often said, you know, when that it's fun living with somebody who, you know, you can have a lunchtime call with them and they say, uh, we found a bod today. I hate finding bods. There's so much paperwork. <laughs> yeah, no, like I said, yeah, it was just really interesting. And yeah, I did really enjoy that story. Well, can I, um, can I volunteer one quick thing here? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Go. One of the things that writers keep hearing is write about what you know. And they don't understand that write about what you know, doesn't necessarily mean you have to, uh, become an expert, though I tend to, um, in whatever field it is, but you can know indirectly by having a pool of resource people. And certainly when I've written about archaeologists, I've definitely asked Jim to make sure I keep things on target. But what you know can also be extended to who you know and make sure you have a good resource base. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any just uh, any other final thoughts or uh, any other projects you're working on that you want to let people know about? Yeah, I'd love to let people know uh, about a project that I have forthcoming. Um, I have just placed two books with Bain. Um, they were so excited about them that the offer actually included a release date, uh, which is <laughs> almost unheard of. Um, but they're called the Overware Duology, Library of the Sapphire Wind and Aurora Borealis Bridge. And they're a sort of twisted portal fantasy in which three women, none of whom are very young, find themselves transported to a world where everybody is uh, theorianthropic and are in the position of going on adventures with a bunch of young people with um, some serious issues to resolve. And uh, I love them to bits and am very, very excited about them. So that's forthcoming. I'm back to working with David Weber, who is an old, old friend, um, on our Stephanie Harrington Star Kingdom series. I don't have release dates for that, but the Overware duology has already been scheduled for spring of next year. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, that, I, I know from interviewing authors that it is really rare <laughs> to have a, a release date for their upcoming project. So yeah, yeah when I looked nice, uh... when I looked at the the offer and, and and the offer included, and we can bring it out in spring of 2022, I said to Jim, well. They are excited. <laughs> and that to me meant a lot. So um, I very much enjoyed talking with you and I hope we can do it again sometime. And maybe if you do come through New Mexico and have time, I hope you'll let me know. Oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll absolutely do that. Yeah. So we'll be uh, my girlfriends and I will be heading, you know, like I said, through New Mexico and then on, on the way back. So, yeah, uh, if we can meet up uh, sometime, that would be amazing. Um, that yeah, would be absolutely. fun. I'll be in touch. I'll be in definitely. We'll be in touch about that. Um, but so, thank you, Jane, so much for joining us uh, again. We've been speaking with Jane Linsgold about her books, Curiosities and Wanderings on Writing, 
So Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jane Linsgold for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.